Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Today's text comes from Isaiah uh, chapter 11, verse 6. This is the word of the living God. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. One of the things I found interesting about this pandemic is that so many states closed their beaches, especially early on. In California, a paddleboarder was carried away in handcuffs for paddleboarding almost 100 yards off the coast. Talk about social distancing. I, I can remember another time in America when our beaches were mostly closed, but it wasn't a pandemic. It was a movie. In 1975, the movie Jaws came out, and for several weeks, the Southern California beaches where I grew up were, were mostly vacant. Uh, very few people went into the water. There were scattered groups on the beach who looked out to sea, I suspect hoping to see a fin in the surf. Um, do you remember Jaws? It seemed for those few weeks in 1975 that everywhere you turned, newspapers were writing about shark attacks, as though the sharks themselves had seen the movie and decided that people were tasty. I don't think that's what happened, but it does seem like there was a rise in, in attacks, or at least reports. The, mo- the movie had focused our attention on the idea there were terrible things in, in the world, things that would eat us. The movie dispelled our fantasy that nature was benign. Today's text starts, the wolf will live with the lamb. Somehow over time, the shorthand for this passage has become the lion shall lie down with the lamb. I'm not sure how that evolved, but however it's phrased, what could sound more unnatural than a wolf or a lion lying down with a lamb? These days we hear a lot about following science, not always easy when any three scientists disagree or when the science seems to change from one day to the next, but something you don't have to be a scientist to, to understand about nature is that lambs don't have much of a chance in the presence of lions. Well, over the years, that's given rise to no shortage of comedic ridicule of this text. Henry Wheeler Shaw, a contemporary of Mark Twain, said in the 19th century, the lion and the lamb may possibly lie down together, but when the lamb gets up, When the lion gets up, the lamb is generally missing. D.H. Lawrence quipped, No absolute is going to make the lion lie down with the lamb unless the lamb is inside. And Woody Allen added his own famous take by, by saying, Someday the lion is going to lie down with the lamb, but the lamb isn't going to get much sleep. Knowing nature as we do, the lion and the lamb as bunkmates seems most unlikely. D.H. Lawrence observed that Uh, It's the very essence of lionhood to devour, and it's the essence of lambhood to be devourable. Any other formulation isn't natural. It's unnatural. It's unnature. 170 years ago, uh, Lord Alfred Tennyson was a student at Cambridge when a very close friend of his died suddenly from a cerebral hemorrhage. His friend was 22 years old, and um, Alfred Tennyson spent years wrestling with Uh, 
with uh, his friend's death and, and how God could be a God of love uh, and still allow his creation to be so cruel. So over the next 17 years, Lord Alfred Tennyson wrote a poem about his friend, about God and about God's creation, and it became one of the most famous poems of the, of the 19th century. And Tennyson's uh, poem is this passage. Who trusted God was love indeed, and love creation's final law, though nature, red in tooth and claw, with ravens shrieked against his creed. Tennyson is saying that if, if nature is purposeless and heartless, how can we believe in the love of God? What he describes as creation's final law. Later he asks, as a Christian, how could he not? A little over 40 years ago, a woman named Annie Dillard wanted to learn more about the character of God, and she thought a good way to do so would, would be to go observe nature. So she moved to a cabin in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And she did in, indeed become a, an astute observer of nature. In fact, she wrote a book about her observations. In 1975, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction. Annie Dillard was 29 years old. She, in the book, she tells us many things she learned about the nature of God. God's love is not one of them. She describes in chapter 2 sitting by a pond and, and watching a giant water bug shoot venom into a frog and liquefy its guts and suck it dry. We can learn a lot about God from nature, his beauty, his order, his regard for consistency. Even the frog incident shows order in life and death. But what we cannot learn about God from watching nature is his love. That's what so confused Tennyson. How can a God of love have created a universe so cruel? That's the question, isn't it? It's a question philosophers and scholars and, and poets have wrestled with for millennia. It's the question we still ask today. In Tennyson's time, the, the whole science versus God controversy was just gaining steam. On one side were those who argued for God's final law, love, and the, on the other were those who argued the idea of a loving God was utterly irreconcilable with nature's violence. About the same time Tennyson was writing, Darwin weighed in with his book, The Origin of Species, and, and gave the God deniers powerful rationales for the idea that nature had nothing to do with God. They frequently quoted Tennyson's red and tooth and claw to, to illustrate the lack of existence of a, of a loving God, that nature was anything but loving. It was terrible and deadly. Nature produces a microscopic killer that blossoms into a global pandemic. It, it spreads, but it has no ambition. It, it targets, but it has no strategy. It, it kills, but it has no malice. Because ambition, strategy, and malice all require conscious agency. And according to the Darwinians, there is no consciousness behind nature. The only agency is random accident. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche eventually declared God was dead that the Enlightenment thinkers of Tennyson's and Darwin's time had eliminated the need, the possibility of God. And with him, the chance there was any objective standard of morality. Nietzsche said, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet by breaking one main concept out of Christianity, faith in God. One breaks the whole. 
The problem is to retain any system of values in the absence of a divine order. Nietzsche's saying that if God doesn't exist, there is no sub, sub, objective standard of truth outside of humans. There, there is no divinely ordained moral order. Or in biblical terms, every man does what is right in his own eyes. Darwin's and Nietzsche's philosophies thoroughly influenced the 20th century, and we see the fallout. Hitler, Marx, Lenin, Stalin, all claimed truth was, was whatever they believed, and, and that the weak must submit to the strong. Uh, each claimed that since there was no God, it was up to man to create heaven on earth. Uh, a goal, they said, could only be accomplished by forcing people to believe what they believe, to, by making people act the way they believe people should act. Each of them claimed he and his ideology, once imposed on society, could change human nature. But rather than heaven on earth, all they accomplished was turning their particular corner of earth into a living hell. Between them, they murdered over 100 million people. And why not? If there is no God, there is no meaning, there is no purpose, there is no intrinsic value to human life. There's only despair, only pain, only suffering. There is no point. Even today, atheist thinkers like Richard Dawkins use Tennyson's phrase, red in tooth and claw, as nature's testimony against the existence of God. In his book, The Selfish Gene, Darwin says, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Dawkins says, I think nature, red in tooth and claw, sums up our modern understanding of natural selection admirably. We are survival machines, robot vehicles, blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. One of my favorite musicians is a guy named Jack Johnson, and Jack Johnson wrote a, a song called Never Know. He sings, Never Know, I won't sing it for you, um, so I'll save you that. Never knowing, shocking, but we're nothing. We're just moments. We're clever, but we're clueless. We're just human, amusing, but confusing. We're trying, but where is all this leading? We'll never know. Is that it then, in Dawkins' terms? Are we nothing more than robot vehicles selfishly striving to preserve our genetic molecules? Or as Jack Johnson sings, are we just moments, cosmic accidents, clever, but clueless, shocking, but nothing? That's what Nietzsche would tell you. That's not what the Bible says, and it's not what Isaiah says here in chapter 11, verse 6. Instead, Isaiah sees a cosmic reversal in the future. Isaiah says something is coming that will turn swords into plowshares, darkness into light, killers into roommates. What is it? What's coming? Well, he points to it in this verse by saying a little child will lead them. Now, I, I, I ran across a lot of Christian teachers who say this means that someday we'll return to the garden where humans will once again be in charge of the animals. I can't tell you the number of commentators I read who said that's what Isaiah means. Humans will once again reign and the animals will have no choice but to bow down even before little children. Most of them are smarter than me, so maybe they're right. But from what we know of human nature, I question whether it's Adam's seed who will lead. I'm convinced the coming child that Isaiah talks about in our text is indeed the answer. But I believe it's not the offspring of Adam. Rather, it's the offspring of Eve, and the evidence for that is all over Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the passage we read every Christmas to our families. 
7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. It's Isaiah 700 years before Christ prophesying the, the Messiah will come, and he will be named Emmanuel. It's the Hebrew word that means God with us. God with us. God with us. God with us. That's a three-part sermon series, but, but for now, let's just talk about what it means that God is with us. Imagine you're laying in the gutter begging for spare change. Just, just imagine you're the lowest of the low. You're, you're gutter trash. People passing or ignoring you. Some maybe drop a few coins in your cup, but truly, they don't want anything to do with you, and for good reason. You smell bad, you look bad, and they don't want to catch whatever you've got. Then along comes someone who doesn't just dig around in his pocket for a few nickels and dimes. He, he actually stops. He stoops down to look at you. But not just that. He gets down on the ground with you. He sits down in that stinking gutter with stinking you, and he puts his arm around you, and he calls you friend. But that's not all. He says, friend, from now on, I am with you. From now on, I am for you. From now on, my life will completely and totally be your life. And then he says, not only that, I'm going to lift you out of this gutter. I'm going to bring you into my home. I'm going to make you a son or a daughter in my father's house. You'll be an heir with me in my father's estate. That's Emmanuel. That's what it means. You and I are living in a gutter, but God comes and he puts his arms around us. He searches us down to our very core. And even then, after seeking the, seeing the muck in our hearts, he lifts us up. But not just that, he makes us new. He gives us a new nature. He gives us his father's name. From gutter trash to noble birth and the speed of light, because that's where we start. We start in utter darkness, and he floods the darkness with light. Emmanuel, God with us. That's been the hope of the Hebrew people since Genesis, and it's our hope. Remember back in Genesis chapter 3, the human race was promised a Messiah, born from the offspring of a woman. Now, if you read your Old Testament, you know how important genealogies are, and you know that genealogies are almost always uh, considered from the male side of the family. Adam was the father of Seth. Seth was the father of Enosh. Enosh was the father of Kenan. Kenan was the father of Mahalalel. And on it goes. Because men have seed. Women do not. But Genesis 3 tells us the one who comes, the one who frees us from our guilt, the one who takes away our sin, the one who saves and restores us to God's kingdom, he would be the offspring, the seed of a woman. And so everybody knew from the beginning God's salvation would come in human form and it would be a miraculous birth. Woody Allen thinks the lion laying down with a lamb is a miracle. This is the real miracle. That God would love us and join us in our filth though we do not deserve it. Though we were his enemies. Though we mocked him. Though we nailed him to a tree. He would lift us up and make us his. The Messiah will come, says Isaiah, and when he comes, he won't be against us. He won't be over us. He won't be three paces in front of us. He'll be with us. 
In fact, he'll be so with us, he becomes one of us. Other religions may have their helpful gods, but do they have Emmanuel, God, with us? Only Jesus enters the mess of our lives. Only Jesus, while we were his enemy, says, I love you, I give myself up to you. Only Jesus enters our dark, draws us near, and overcomes the darkness with light. And he hasn't changed. Yes, he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. But he still yearns to stoop. He's still bone of our bones, flesh of our flesh. He still yearns to come, no matter our wickedness, our failure, our fault. Any religion can tell you how big God is. Only Emmanuel tells you that God has made himself small for our sake. That's what it means, God with us. And then in chapter 9, Isaiah tells us more. He tells us this Emmanuel, this God with us, will be given to us as a child. It's another scripture we read every Christmas. From from Isaiah 9-2, we read, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And then in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. All this happens in the 8th century before Christ. The the people are walking in darkness. Israel is is, uh, facing the army of Assyria, which is about to sweep down from the north. Assyria ruled a a vast empire with harshness and terror unsurpassed in history. In fact, Assyria was one of the first countries we read about in history that had a massive standing army of of professional soldiers trained particularly in, in, in cruelty. And and so the people of Israel were were literally in the land of the shadow of death, waiting to be overtaken, knowing they could not stand up to the Assyrian army. When the Assyrians swept in, their men would be killed, their their women would be defiled, their children would be turned into slaves. What possible light could there be in this devastating darkness? Emmanuel tells, or Isaiah tells us, it's Emmanuel. Here in verse 6, he says, To us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Here is the great Christmas hope. Here is what will transform our hateful and and shabby world. will turn war into peace. Men broken hearts conquer death, cause lions to lie down with lambs, a baby. But not just any baby. And then Isaiah describes this special child, this mighty God with three titles. He is the Prince of Peace, who is filled by the Wonderful Counselor, and who reveals to us the Everlasting Father. The Son himself is the Prince, but in him dwells the Counselor, and he shows us the Father, such that the fullness of deity, the mighty triune God, dwells in this child. People say the Old Testament Israelites didn't know the Messiah would be God. Only if their mind was closed to one of the clearest prophecies in all of Scripture. Here is the Messiah who is mighty God. And what will he do? He will shine into the darkness of the valley 
and bring us through to the other side to a feast. He will share his overflowing cup. He will save his wayward sheep. He is Emmanuel, God with us, born of a virgin. He is the son given to us. Then in chapter 11, Isaiah tells us more. In verse 1, Isaiah describes him as a shoot coming from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father, so we know that he'll be in the royal line of David. And then in verse 2, he says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Isaiah says, the spirit will rest on him. And so Isaiah says he will be spirit-filled. And then in verses 3 to 5, he speaks of, of, of the Messiah's righteousness and ruling. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. The just, with justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He's saying it's not the acts you perform for him to see or hear. It's whether you understand your need, your poverty. He comes for those who know their good deeds cannot save them. He, it's his righteousness that saves, not ours. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Well, these verses require a whole sermon, and we don't have time, obviously, but I'll say this. Isaiah is saying here, the Messiah will know the wicked because they're the ones who think they don't need him. He's saying, you can't be saved by your own righteousness. Self-righteousness doesn't save. It's Christ's righteousness that saves. And then immediately following that passage is our text today, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. He is the little child who will rule creation and turn it upside down. And when you boil it down, verse 6 is really making that point. Christ won't just turn things right side up spiritually. He'll do it physically as well. You see, when the false king Adam brought both spiritual and physical death with his rebellion... The true King Christ will bring spiritual and physical redemption. There will be a day when actual wolves and lambs lays together in the afternoon sun, when sharks swim happily with, with humans, when children play with polar bears. The believers in Christ have a physical hope, death defeated, wars vanquished, disease abolished, nature itself brought to peace and prosperity, lions lying down with lambs. He brings a new earth and a new heaven. And Christ himself leads and reigns. And according to the New Testament, we reign with him. I don't know what that means. I don't know what Revelation means when it says we'll rule with Christ, but I know what Isaiah says. And at the end of Isaiah, in chapter 25, verses 7 to 9, he gives us a glimpse of our future. He says this, On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He'll swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So how do we apply this? Allison, sorry, Tennyson said, nature is red in tooth and claw. It's difficult for us to imagine nature ever being benign. We, we know lions and wolves and, and sharks too well. And if we're honest, we know ourselves too well. In the same way, it can be difficult for us to imagine putting aside 
old animosities and tribal identities and, and see, see the nearness of, of Christ's kingdom, which, which Isaiah foresees. But it's only with a clear vision of that kingdom we can lay down our old grudges and our former identities and take on instead the common identity we share as followers of Christ. Can we love and forgive and, and be reconciled? The Bible says we can. Where do we get the power? From Christ in us and from us in Christ. In John 8, 32, Christ says, the truth shall set us free. Christ wants to set the world right, turn your heart, turn your hurt into pain and, and joy, make lambs and lions bunkmates. It's popular these days to, to put aside reason and to resort to pure passion. But finding grievance is e easy. Anger and frustration are the easiest thing in the world, but they're almost completely counterproductive. Of course, we should be angry when we see injustice. We should call it out and take a stand. But, but we must deal with the reality of the thing with facts and reason. That, that's where we can find common ground and, and reconcile our differences. If It's the truth that sets us free, but how can we know the truth if we don't trust the author of truth? Can you put aside a grudge, forgive an offense, find a, find a way to reconcile? Just try it once. And, and when you let it go, when you've done the difficult work of forgiveness and reconciliation, you'll be able to meet the offspring of the woman, the person of Jesus, as you never have before. Here's another thing. Isaiah says, unto us a child is given. Do you see the gift that's on offer here? Four verses after Christ tells us the truth will set us free, he says from John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. God comes and joins you in your suffering, your pain, your guilt, your feelings of inadequacy, your meaninglessness. He shows you you're not just a robot vehicle programmed to preserve genetic molecules. And while Jack Johnson might be right when he asserts you're clever but clueless, we all can be apart from God's word, but you're not shocking but nothing. In fact, you're of such inestimable worth to the Father that he offers as a gift a son, his son, who joins you, lifts you up, loves you, heals you, and restores you. What part do we play in this? Well, as an application, this is not very good because we don't play any part in it. Remember what Isaiah says in chapter 9, verse 7, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from this time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You and I play no role because we would only mess it up. The zeal of the Lord God Almighty accomplishes it. You and I only get in the way. If you're a beggar in the gutter, what do you do with a God who gets down on your level and joins you in your suffering and your sin, your complacency, your fear, your heartbreak? Every other religion has a God walking past, maybe tossing a few cups, coins in the cup. But do they have Emmanuel, God with us, a God who comes to you and joins you in your misery and your pain and, and says, I am with you, I love you, I want you, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will do anything to win your heart. I will die for you. What role do we play? We, we do nothing. We can do nothing except receive his gift as grateful beneficiaries, undeserving in every possible sense. 
but overwhelmed in every conceivable way. So we live in utter darkness. How can we not welcome the light? The Prince of Peace offers his perfect righteousness. How can we believe ours is better? The Son has literally died to bring you a miraculous and wonderful gift. How can we do anything but receive it? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the gift of your unfailing love. Make your presence, uh, Lord, known in our lives. Help us to see our uh, desperate need. Give us a a glimpse of your glorious future. Uh, We thank you for not losing patience with us, for giving yourself up for us, for rescuing and reconciling us. Help us this week, Jesus, to be mindful of your love. Help us to receive it. In your name, Christ. Amen. Today's benediction comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 and 19. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.